Welcome everyone to the B2B Marketing Perspectives Podcast. I'm Steve McDonald, your host, and I'm on today with Vinay Nair. Now, Vinay has a phenomenal background from analysts, consulting, planning side, working with companies like IBM and Microsoft and owning the P&L, taking doubling SaaS companies from 25 to 50 million in ARR. And he has an incredible perspective on how do you be successful as a CMO? What do you need to do? And how do you need to be a business partner with the rest of the C-suite? So with that, Vinay, I'm going to let you maybe do a little bit more of a robust introduction of yourself, and then we'll get right into it. Sure, sure. So, like I said, my name is Vinay Nair, and I, uh, I'm a Canadian uh, you know, based out of Toronto, um, born and raised here, but spent so much time in the States and overseas uh, and came back home to, to raise my family. Um, but yeah, so my, my background is I kind of fell into tech um, almost accidentally uh, about 20 plus years ago. My roommate, uh, started a company in our house and, uh, and uh, needed some people to help and, you know, do some sales and marketing and business planning and a whole bunch of other stuff. I had no background in marketing before. I was a student in grad school studying criminology of all things. Hmm. Um, but yeah, that just started, that kickstarted my journey um, into progressively larger companies uh, as I tried to, you know, understand, you know, how, how companies scale, how software companies scale. Um, so, you know, moved from startups, um, you know, into, into consulting where I worked with IDC, um, which is kind of a premier market research market intelligence firm. Um, they're kind of up there with Forrester and Gartner in terms of, uh, you know, influence. Um, and so spent some time studying the markets, got moved overseas uh, in that process and looked at the emerging markets in Middle East and Africa for, for a while. And then, um, and then I, I got hired by my client that was at the end of time um, to, to move in their market strategy department um, doing um, you know, basically market intelligence analysis um, on the different software markets that, that IBM wanted to get into at the time. And so, yeah, so um, really got into the planning side of marketing and that side, uh, really spent more time uh, behind a spreadsheet than on a stage uh, by, by many means. That was kind of where my orientation was. Um, got hired by Microsoft um, and I credit Microsoft for, for turning this analyst into a leader. Uh, in a very quick period of time. Um, but, you know, being good with the spreadsheet really helped you in Microsoft. Uh, so um, kind of played a bunch of roles there in the product marketing side, the marketing operations field marketing uh, side in the Canadian subsidiary. Um, and um, and then eventually moved into a, into what they call the BG lead roles. They don't have them anymore. They dismantled those roles, but their roles are very attractive to me because they were more than just marketing roles. They were Kind of like general manager roles where you, you own the revenue PL of your product line in a particular geographical market. Um, and so I moved into a BG lead role um, where uh, I had my first kind of people leading responsibility, but also my first PL responsibility. And that's that's where I say I got, you know, I got really trained on the business side of things, um, particularly in the business planning uh, side of, of, of the house. Um, but yeah, I know, I think I, 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 uh, it ran its course, my time in some of these larger organizations and I wanted to go back to my entrepreneurial roots. And so I, I joined, a, um, a growth tech company, uh, you know, scale up, I would call it, uh, in, in Toronto, uh, that was in the, uh, enterprise health and safety space, um, and was part of a team that grew, uh, that business, uh, significantly, uh, into the point that it got acquired by strategic. Um, 
you know, and then I jumped out of that and moved to another one. And then again, we scaled that company again, uh, part of a team that scaled that company, um, you know, almost doubling it uh, in the time frame we were there. And, and then also that got acquired by a strategic. And so since then, I've just been, you know, um, privately freelancing as a freelance CMO, um, you know, and, and uh, an executive coaching. So I started a coaching practice about a year and a half ago. And, and currently I'm coaching uh, SaaS founders, um, you know, uh, across uh, the North American, actually in Australia too, um, in partnership with SaaS Academy. So that's, that's kind of my journey to today. Well, tell us one of the key aspects of the conversation we had right before we hit the record button was, you know, the, the time that you learned about the PL. Because mm-hmm. marketers today love to talk about, we don't just create MQLs and throw them over the wall, right? We're revenue focused. Right. right? And it's about deep penetration into the pipeline and, and revenue. But when you own the PL, right? And you own the marketing budget, and the sales budget, the customer service, all those budgets together. Tell us how that experience has informed now how you're coaching and working with SaaS companies today. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, fundamentally, I think that was a very unique experience for as a marketer to, to have that you know, responsibility. Um, most of my peers that I, I, I worked with as a CMO um, really came from the communications side of marketing, right? So they were very creative, they were great communicators, they're great executors, but they just locked that little business acumen piece, which, which basically like you know, made them lose a lot of credibility with the C-suite. And so, um, yeah, fundamentally, I'd say like you know um, that piece of it. I think that piece of understanding um, the PL of a business and then coming in there and and being part of the process of uh, building the revenue planning for the business versus the marketing budget planning of the business is a, is a shift that I believe, you know, was, was very uh, easy for me because of my experience, but it was something that, that's a, a journey that a, a lot of folks, um, not just CMOs, but even the founders of these companies uh, struggle with, you know, um, revenue planning, operational KPIs, and really creating systemized growth in their business. I find that I spent like almost 50% of my time coaching on that piece, which has nothing to do with marketing. Well, tell us a little bit about what that means with the relationships that you have with the C-suite. And this comes as is in context of CMOs these days have the shortest tenure on the C-suite. They have half the tenure of that of the CEO. So the finger always seems to get pointed our way. So you talked about the importance of building business relationships with the C-suite, not only the CEO, not only the CRO, CFO, right? And, and on, tell us a little bit more about the importance of that and how you do that. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, um, you know, I think that's, that's an area where I felt really helped me when I was in those positions, because as a CMO, I knew a lot about marketing, I knew about the tactics, I knew about the execution, um, and I spent a lot of time with the sales leader, who obviously there's a, a you know a connected success there between the two of us. Um, but I, I what, what I think what was very unique about my strategy, you know, post leaving Microsoft was I had a comfort level speaking about numbers and planning, and 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 and, and that allowed me to go and build a bridge with the CFO uh, of the company to really understand how 
they're thinking about the revenue point for business. And, and I was able to get in with them with a no ego approach and say, listen, can I get some time on your calendar once a month just for you to kind of like educate me on how you guys are thinking about growing this business. And, and, and in those connection points, not only do I build a relationship with them, but I'm also getting mentored by them. And that's the way you almost even look at it because there's a lot of intricacies of the business that, that you need to understand so that you're not taken by surprise come budgeting time when you don't get the budget you want, right? And so you kind of part of it, the same way you kind of have to influence your customers to want to come to you when it's ready to buy, you almost have to influence your CFO, your CEO um, about, you know, the resourcing requirements that are required to go run the business in your market, right? And if you don't do that with work up front prior to budgeting cycles, you're probably going to get the short end stick on budgeting cycles that they just don't understand. You know, I mean, they don't understand your world. You know? And that right there, I think, is a good place to accentuate a point, your word, right? CEO is not going to fire himself. Maybe the board's going to be, uh, you know, but the CEO is there to stay. That's why you're, their tenure is twice as long as the CMO, right? The CFO, you can't get rid of the CFO. Who's going to run the numbers of the organization? The finger rarely gets pointed over at sales because who can run a company without sales? Right? <laughs> right. Who's the expendable of that C-suite, right? Yeah. Who's the one that's the most expendable? So if you're not building credibility, you're not building trust in a way that ultimately adds value. I mean, we talk as, as B2B organizations and, and CMOs as you know helping to build and add value and establish trust and credibility and expertise in the company. What you're talking about is actually doing that for the brand of you as the CMO within your own C-suite and being perceived as a strategic value add partner versus the guy that's coming in and complaining about, I didn't get enough money to do what I need to do. Right. Tell us a little bit about that kind of an experience and, and you know, what that does to the perception of you as a CMO. Yeah. I, mean, I think, you know, and I've done it the wrong way and I've done, I've done it the, the, my way, you know, um, you know, you know on, on, on two occasions and, you know, I think when you when you when you're part of that process with them, um, and you kind of be the person that's kind of representing the market. Um, when I mean by market, I mean you know the mechanics of the market, like you know how 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 big is the market? What's that TAM look like? You know what's the number of you know potential you know people that you can possibly sell to? How many of those people are going to be in the market in a given year? Like if you have those type of numbers at your fingertips, so you're inputting into the planning process with that, when a CEO or a CFO says, hey, we're going to grow our, our budget 100%, we're going to grow our revenue target 100% year over year, and you look at your market and it's only growing 10%, you know, or you look at your market and, and you see that the maturity, uh, the maturity curve of your market is in that laggard phase and less than 5% are in the market in a given year. Like if you're looking at those type of numbers and you're able to counter and, and, and drive those inputs into the revenue planning process, you'll probably you know, be happy or, or at least not surprised at the other end of it when the budget gets handed over to you um, as to what it's going to be and if it's whether you need, you need it to what it needs to be, right? So, but on the other hand of it, if you kind of wait you know, until budgeting happens and then you start to count having conversation and making noise about how much budget you need to be. And you haven't been part of inputting the process all the year through. Prior to that, you're probably going to be surprised and you're probably going to be disappointed, right? Um, 
right? And so from a CMO perspective, like I've been, I did, I did both those strategies where I, I, I did the, I did the noise making strategy when the budget came and it, and it just kind of ruins your reputation um, with C-suite because, you know, they just look at you as being more of an emotional, you know, creative type that doesn't really understand the business reality. But if you kind of, if you really like execute, you know, this influence strategy throughout the year, you know, you can actually be part of the process. In some cases, like to your point, the CMO is usually the one that goes first and it's not personal. Um, it's because um, it is the biggest, you know, discretionary spend that's not people, you know, in the business, right? And so it's, a, it's an easy one to cut without like immediate short-term impact, you know? Um, and, 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 and so it, it's, it's just, it is what it is. Right. Um, and so, but if you kind of know how the business is going, it's not going to be a surprise to you. Right. And, and so I've been in some scenarios where I actually even laid off myself, you know, where I said, Hey, you know what, if you guys are going on this direction, you're not going down that direction anymore. You don't need a CMO actually. And then you're able to kind of actually be in front of that and, and be able to have conversations about what a package needs to look like and things like that. And that's just the reality of things, right? Because you're part of the process and it's so much more human and so much more, you know, you know, participatory and collaborative than being a victim on the other end of it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so there's there's one side that we've talked a lot about here, which is being that business partner, being a part of that planning process, right? Being a strategic input and a voice within that, taking on a role there. On the other side, though, is with PNL, it's tying marketing to profit and loss. Yeah. Right? So all CMOs these days, we want to talk about, you know, we're all focused on revenue. Right. So tell me a little bit about when you're when you're coaching and you're inside with these these SaaS companies, how are you helping them train how they tie what they're doing in with that marketing budget directly to the profit and loss of the company. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's an interesting one because marketing is such a indirect science, you know, as much as people want to call it uh, performance marketing and they look at the leads and they look at the conversion of those leads and they say, okay, Hey, like I've been in companies where they say, I want to do more lead generation. I don't want to do brand stuff, you know? And, and, you, you, and, and it's, it's just kind of like, it's it's laughable to me now when I, when I hear that, because it's like, you can't disconnect the, you know, these two systems, like you want a tree, but you don't want to give water, you know, like it's, it's they're all connected, right? So, you know, part of the role as a CMO is to be able to like, you know, educate about those connection points. But the way I, I tend to do it is I, I, you know, I kind of call it, you know, three Bs, you know, B for Benet. But it's funny, it's kind of like, you know, there's, there's, there's three inputs that really matter towards driving customer acquisition at scale. There's like the volume you do, right? Like the amount of volume of opportunities that you create, um, the velocity in which you close them. So how fast you close those things and how efficiently you close it. And then there's the, there's the, there's the value of the deal sizes, right? And so I always kind of come down to that and saying, hey, those three of these is, you know, is, is really what marketing supports for. Right. So from the volume perspective, obviously lead generation, getting as many leads in the pipe as possible, but that's great. Um, and then and then the the value of it is like, okay, hey, are we targeting the right customers? Like are we are we going to down market with low ACV? Are we going up market with high ACV, right? Kind of clients. And that's a targeting thing. Again, very much marketing in your control. 
The velocity piece, which is the, hey, how efficiently do you close those deals? That's the piece where stuff like brand comes in. That's the piece where stuff like sales enablement comes in. Because like, those are things that marketing is not directly responsible for, but it's a role we play and we have to play anyway, right? And so if your company has a good brand and I measure brand by brand awareness, brand preference and, and, and advocacy, those are the three measures of brand. So if people can recall who you are when they see you on an ad, your likelihood of converting that lead is going to be much higher than if they never heard of you before. So that's why investment in general brand awareness is good because you want to got people, you want people to recall you, right? Then there's the second story is like, hey, there's preference. Okay, so what Coke versus Pepsi. Why does this taste exactly the same? Why does someone prefer Coke? You know. And that's really the affinity to the brand, and there's some experiences that they've created, um, and you know, in their in their advertising strategy and so forth that people connect with more than Pepsi, for example. So, what does that look like for our firm? We got to create some sort of experiences um, where people will prefer us over others, right? And then there's the there's the um, there's the uh, advocacy piece, which is like, how are you like inspiring your customers to go tell the world how wonderful you are, right? And so those are all like brand investments that kind of help drive that velocity piece. It drives the value, the volume piece, right? And ultimately the value piece, right? So that conversation, like I just kind of in a nutshell, like when I have that with a CFO um, or someone who's not like a marketer, they kind of get it. They get that there's something there. Now, what they don't get is the, the timelines, right? Like how long does it take to build brand equity? How long does it take to go through these things? And, why marketing's role is not just lead gen, it's also the, the brand and things. And so that was a piece I'd have to come to, you know, ongoing dialogue outside of budget cycle. Does that make sense? Well, yes. And, in, in, and that brand piece, right, that can be so generic when the term brand is sold. Yeah. sold you know, yeah. But in today's B2B world, B2B buyers don't want to be sold to. Right. When they actually do get to the point where they want to talk to somebody inside of the company, which is now they're 70% of the way through their research, right? So marketing is playing a greater role in sales than we ever have before. But they want to talk to somebody who's an advisor, a trusted, an expert in the industry, somebody that beyond representing well the product and services that you're talking about, but can talk to them about the trends, you know, how to do their job better, how to reduce the risks and what their the decisions that they're making, right? So when you talk about brand, we talk about how are we establishing the company as a leader in the industry, right? Somebody that you do want to talk to. And that is done through the content that we share, right? And so- I always ask this of everybody who comes onto the show. So I'm going to, Vinay, I'm going to ask you this. In terms of content overall as a marketer, how do you look at it? If you were to rate it in its overall importance for the success, the growth and success of the company, one, not important at all, 10, vital to that growth and success, how would you rate it and why? Oh my God, it's vital. I mean, I, and I've had this conversation so many times um with with folks um on the on the on the on the financial side of the, of the business on this thing and and essentially it's like i i, I explained it this way it's like hey like we spend a lot of money on building a product and an intellectual property of a product behind the paywall right 
we're, we're trying to like get all these UI and UX people to come make the experience amazing. We're trying to upsell and cross-sell them. We're doing all this stuff and we justify it because it's the creation of intellectual property for the business that's going to have value in the business moving forward, right? But we don't even, we ignore the intellectual property before the paywall, which is the discovery of the product in the first place, right? And and what I try to make you know, my my folks understand, investors, CFOs, you know, CEOs, is like that investment in content is actually an extension of your intellectual property. Because why would you spend so much money creating a product that no one actually discovers, right? And so if you don't invest in the content and the discovery of your product, who cares about whether or not the customer is going to actually want to like buy your product because they'll never find you, right? There's going to be an inferior product out there that invests more in content, you know, that's going to get the, the acquisition of the buyers and they're going to grow. And there's so many cases of that in the world, you know, where, where inferior products rule because they invest in the discovery of their product, the acquisition of customers, et cetera, et cetera. So to answer the question, I think content is really an intellectual property investment of the company. You're starting to see this happen in some product-led companies where you're starting to see SEO and content marketing fall within product now because they get that piece. Um, but uh, to your point, it's 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 invaluable. Like I, I just, I struggle sometimes when people don't get that piece and they think they can run a company off of like a, a boiler room sales template, you know, where you got a bunch of, you try to grow their company through what they call rep math. Okay, I want to grow my, my company $10 million and they hire 10 reps and give them a million dollar quota each and I'm going to get there, right? Right. Basically discounting all the, the buyer dynamics around your content that actually gets them to want to talk to your rep in the first place, right? So you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir in that sense. Well, what I want to do is I want to have a few moments here for you to, with everything that we've talked about, what's the takeaway, right? We're running marketing in our organization. What is it that you would leave us with from all of your years of experience and coaching and working across continents with, with companies and CMOs that are, and CEOs that are trying to build their business? What is it the the value that you'd like to leave us with here? Yeah, I mean, there's so, so much here, but I think I think generally it's 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 kind of rethinking marketing within within the organization, right? Like it's not a you know intangible, you know, un, un, you know, nebulous function of your company. It's actually a critical and vital part of your company. And everyone knows that, right? But the prioritization they make around marketing. Um, is is something that really you know fluctuates based on who the, who, the, who the leader is, right? And so I always talk about like building that market-led growth company, uh, and it's what I'm writing about as well, which is like really thinking about you know building a company that's going to be connected into your market um, and and be the one that's able to capture the most market. Even before you, when you start to think about, you know, the product that you're going to build for them, you know, and so you're starting to see a lot of companies think about themselves. And I worked for a founder that, you know, used to blog first before he became a founder, uh-huh. and he built a following, an audience before he even built a product for them, you know, he can sell to them, and how valuable his company was when he actually ended up exiting because he made that investment in content and, and investment in you know, the, 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 the main authority of his, of, his, of his website, but his company essentially afterwards. So 
that's where I spend, I, I, I always leave it with when I, when I coach founders today, it's like, hey, you want to build a valuable company or you want to build a fast growth company? Um, and, and they always say valuable, obviously. I'm like, okay, well, this is what valuable companies are doing now, right? And, and it starts with building out their, 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 their intellectual property before the paywall and building an audience first and then kind of building the capability of the products that will serve that audience better. So that's definitely one thing that I, I leave with my, a lot of my CEO clients and like this growth concept. Um, and then the second thing is really around just the CMOs that work within these companies is, is, is kind of what we talked about before, which is be a business leader, not a marketing leader, right? Like, yeah, just really understand the, 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 the business dynamics um, of your company. And then your job is to really evangelize the market to the, to, to the business, you know? And if, and if you're not doing that piece, if you're not prioritizing that piece, if you're, if you're getting stuck in the weeds and the execution below you, your tenure is going to be very, very short, you know, and that's, that's just the reality of things. So making that pivot and that shift to being business leader and then really thinking about how you can inject marketing to go drive the entire business versus just lead gen is going to be the key to, uh, key to success. Well, I think there's lots of notes that are being taken. <laughs> Thank you, Vadeso, for, for coming on and, and sharing what a, an extensive background that you've had and a, a path to the CMO that, that most of us have not had. So sharing that with us has been absolutely brilliant. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I love, I love what you guys do and, uh, and I, believe, uh, I believe in it. So uh, yeah, let's definitely stay in touch. Fantastic.